Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 185 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday afternoon, November 30th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek and the New York football giants are, wait for it, Bobby, in first place. <laughs> oh, the NFC East. But hey, finally, I can get excited about your Giants because they are now led for the moment by Hookum. Yes, Texas Far can win something. Legend. Um, apparently, Texas is capable. You know, Texas can win something, apparently, although not apparently <laughs> our own college football games. Oh, I, we, we'll have to talk about what is going on there. We'll get to our frivolity if we can make frivolity room for it because. because we should talk about the Mandalorian. But, exactly. but wait. But, Hold on a second. Before we before we get off the Giants, can I just say, like, yes, they're four and seven. Yes, by the time you listen to this podcast, they may no longer be in first place if the Eagles somehow beat the Seahawks tonight, which, by the way, isn't going to happen. But, you know, Bobby, it's November 30th and the Giants are in first place. I feel like that, you know, who cares about their record? Like, that's cool. <laughs> the never never mind that they're never mind that they're not the favorite to win any of their remaining five games. Right. I mean, <laughs> You know, the way this division's going, they could be 5-11 and 11 and, and win the division. Well, ESPN is still projecting the uh, the Eagles to be more likely to come out at, at the end. But, you know, the East is so bad. There's no bragging rights for me. I love it. There. Uh, are but you kidding? I'm happy wait, 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 wait. Are you, are you kidding? I'm, I'm bragging. Like, if the Giants somehow pull this stinker of a division out, like, that division championship doesn't come with an asterisk. It's like they were 12-4 and four or 14-2. and two. Like, it's still a division championship. It's, it's bragging? I'm just not yeah. sure there's much of right about it. Well, okay, fair, but when has that stopped me before? No, that's true. Well, what else can we talk about besides the Mandalorian and the New York Giants? Um, All right, so, so speaking of bragging not so much of right, right, I got a favorable district court decision in Larrabee. we got to talk about Larrabee. Congratulations, you won the case. Um, well, I mean, I won, I won in the district court. I, I wouldn't say I won the case. There, you, the the government just, might yet have something to say about that. home now? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, listen, the way that Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis approach litigation, I mean, you know, Wait, I could Steve, have declared victory. Did you release the Kraken? <laughs> I released the Kraken, and, and oh my God. Is, to, are, are, is releasing the Kraken going into our episode title? Um, so far, it's a candidate. Just let me pause to ask something that I know many people online have also asked. In the name of Harry Hamlin, have these people who keep re- talking about releasing the Kraken, do they not know what actually happened with the Kraken? Of course they don't, Bobby. They don't know anything. Oh, fair enough. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean the, the number of people coming after me on Twitter telling me, yeah, okay, so the Third Circuit unanimously affirmed the district court's refusal to let them in the complaint. That was all just part of the strategy. They're just trying to get this to SCOTUS. No. Oh, they're not, like giving no. up a touchdown so you can get the ball back? <laughs> <laughs> If we just let them score a few more times, we'll have them right where we want them. Exactly. Oh All right. So, God. so we've got we've got Larrabee to talk about. We have Trumplandia litigation. Yeah, the coup de blah continues coup to blah. Uh, we'll we'll update a little bit. We won't say too much because there's. Really- I, I think the I think the blah to coup ratio is increasing. Yeah, the, <laughs> that actually is a pretty good. Uh, Title. I'm writing that down. That the, down? Blah, the, the blah to coup ratio is increasing. <laughs> we'll talk. We'll transition from there and segue into uh, some notes on the those who've been named uh, for the national security team for President-elect Joe Biden, and that will lead us to a discussion as well about the uh, the statute that tries to create some temporal space uh, between the time a service member uh, leaves service and retires and when they can become Secretary of Defense. An issue. That previously got attention when uh, General Mattis became Secretary Mattis. Um, we're going to talk about that rule and probably some other things will come up along the way. And then, of course, we've had a, a series now of, uh, of targeted uses of lethal force in Iran. Um, we need to talk a little bit about what's been going on there. We should at least talk about the, the killing uh, that's been publicly attributed in the media, at least to Israel. Um, of the scientist, the, the head physicist in the Iranian nuclear program. Um, and perhaps we can talk about other aspects of, of using lethal force in a targeted way, because this comes somewhat close on the heels of a separate operation in which a longtime senior core Al-Qaeda leader um, was killed in Iran as well. And that one, there's, there's, there's more media uncertainty about. Was that was that Israel? Was that the Israelis acting on behalf of the United States? Was it the United States directly? What was going on there? That one seems more likely than the physicist one to uh, 
perhaps have more direct U.S. involvement. We'll, we'll talk about all that. And maybe we'll talk about that in the context of Trump uh, continuing to try to make good on his uh, much discussed promise to draw down forces, U.S. forces deployed for combat roles in Afghanistan, in Iraq and Somalia. Um, we'll talk about the implications of all this, maybe for Guantanamo litigation, and maybe we can even speculate, Steve, we can, <laughs> we're pretty good at that, speculate about where the Biden administration is going to be on topics including Guantanamo, Guantanamo repatriation, and military commissions. Um, in fact, why don't we start with that Iran topic, then go to Larrabee, then we'll get to the coup de blah, and then we'll finally get to, uh, to the fun stuff. Sound good? All right. Um, in Iran, well, I guess we've already set the table for this. We've noted these these two targeted uh, uses of force. There's all sorts of speculation, uh, some pretty wild claims about how the uh, most recent killing of the physicist was effectuated. Um, it's unclear yet what exactly went down, but from our legal perspective, we probably don't need to dwell or shouldn't get too bogged down in the details of was it a remotely... You know, was it a bomb? Was it an ID? Was it a remotely controlled machine gun? Was it a person? Who knows? Um, on the use of lethal force, probably I'm speculating it, at least at the request of the United States, if it was done by the Israelis or maybe done by us directly against the Al Qaeda senior leader. Um, this is a timely reminder that uh, through three different presidents now, going back to late 2001, we continue to claim to be in a state of armed conflict with uh, Al-Qaeda and its associated forces. This is one that presents an interesting organizational coverage question, not because of the more familiar problem in which the person who's targeted is linked to a group that you need to connect to the AUMF and, and the idea of the armed conflict based on the associated forces theory, like with you know AQAP or something like that. But rather, this, this goes back to old school, um, OG, core Al-Qaeda senior leadership. Um, but here the question then becomes like, does that, you know, at what point, if ever, does that age out? Is there is there any requirement on the government's part? Is there any notion that there has to be some showing of recent involvement? Um, I don't think the U.S. government's position entails any such test. It's interpretation of its authority up to this point. As seen, in, you get a glimpse of this in the Guantanamo litigation years ago. Um, it's not that you could never uh, distance yourself sufficiently from the organization. But if I remember correctly from many years ago, Steve, you'll probably remember better than I do. I believe the government's position was you have to have affirmative evidence of renunciation, like willing distancing and separation on the part of the otherwise uh, member of the organization. Isn't that how they used to litigate it? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There's, I'm trying to remember which DC Circuit case it is, but there's, 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 there's Gitmo case law on this exact question. And yes, it's, it's not just tacit; it has to be affirmative. Long ago, Ben Wittes and I wrote a series of papers for Brookings that were sort of like horn books for the emerging case law that was coming up all the habeas petitions. And there was always a section of that report on vitiation of your, of your individual connection to the organization. Um, and in this case, I think probably under that model, it's no surprise the government took the position, which it looks like it did, that uh, the guy's name was Al-Hazmi, wasn't it? Uh, that Al-Hazmi, or was it Al-Mazri? Al-Mazri. No, I think it was. I'm, I'm going to find this. You keep yeah, talking. Gonna, we should, we, in, in case you're wondering, we have reverted back to our zero prep ways. And for anyone who's new to the show, who's thinking like, what kind of, what kind of reverted? Wait, 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 reverted. When were we not in this, in this, in this? Didn't we prep once recently? I feel like we did. And it was so smooth. <laughs> but if anyone's new to the show, you should understand that's, it's been part of the deal from day one. We, we are at the water cooler and we've turned on the mic, virtually speaking. Um, all right. So is there anything else interesting to say from the AOMF perspective about that particular use of force? Or is the interesting thing that for once... It was a core Al-Qaeda case, which is so rare over the past few years, past many years, frankly. Could it have been Salahi? Oh, gosh, this is embarrassing. I should have looked this up. All right. Um, well, look. We'll, sure. we'll... By the way, the, the answer to your question is, is I think this is just sort of, you know, this is this is um, uh, 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 an old school issue in new school times, right? I mean, I don't think there's anything especially new on the on the substantive okay. front. So it, it was Al-Mazri. It was Abu Muhammad Al-Mazri. Oh. That's who it was. Uh, Bobby a, wins. Yes. Uh, I lose. So, uh, yeah, a hot, just for those who didn't follow that story. So this is about uh, two weeks ago. 
it's it's long been known that al Mazri was uh, has basically been in Iran more or less for all these years after the initial wave of escapes from Afghanistan and or Pakistan um, after 9-11. Uh, he was unquestionably, at least at one point in time, an extremely high-ranking leader, sometimes described as the second or third-ranking leader. No question at some point in time he was intimately involved in senior leadership. He really does go back to the 1990s days, uh, the original group that comes in coalition together to form uh, the base or al-Qaeda. Uh, the only interesting question is, what, what is the, what's the status of that core leadership group? It's unclear whether al-Zawahiri himself is still alive. It's unclear what it really means in practical terms to have these senior level positions for the core group. Um, there are those who take the position that, in effect, the core group is, is simply a legacy status at this point, that it has no real operational uh, capabilities or control or leverage over the, of the various franchises. Um, that may be the case. It may not be the case. Uh, Talk to Bruce Hoffman and, and Dan Byman, people like that, if you want to know. We don't know. But what we do know is that it's very consistent with the government's uh, approach in general to how how you think about the connection of individuals to al-Qaeda as to whether they're in scope or out of scope for the larger claim of an armed conflict. This using force against him, despite the passage of years, is no surprise. Um, what What's really interesting, of course, is to ask whether, given the Trump administration's repeated claims that we are bringing the troops home, that we're drawing down, albeit only to 1,500, not to zero, uh, overseas deployed troops in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and then murkier as to what exactly it is we're going to be doing or not doing in Somalia. But nonetheless, a clear effort to try to say we're pulling back. Uh, what does this do for the claim that there's still an armed conflict? And here, I think it's useful to bear in mind that the claim that the AUMF is still operable and the question of whether as a matter of the law of armed conflict, of international humanitarian law, whether there still exists an internationally recognizable state of armed conflict such that IHL or LOAC applies, um, those things are related, but they're not the same questions. Now, that doesn't mean U.S. courts are going to say, well, the AUMF still applies, yes, because the executive branch says so, but but uh, law of armed conflict no longer applies, so therefore that controls. It's entirely possible that the, uh, the U.S. legal system will continue to just focus on the AUMF and the NDAA from fiscal year 2012 with its detention provisions. But you can imagine a circumstance in which the underlying international law detention legal framework that undergirds all this, which depends on there being a state of armed conflict, um, that that becomes increasingly challenged. This happened when Obama announced uh, a shift from combat operations focus in Afghanistan to training focus. And then in litigation, the Justice Department had to walk that back quite a bit saying, hey, no, it's it's still armed conflict. We're still doing airstrikes the whole nine yards. I assume we're going to see much the same thing here, even assuming that Trump actually effectuates this final stage of drawdown and assuming that the Biden administration leaves it there or perhaps even goes a bit further. But I think you'll still see the Biden Justice Department under whoever's attorney general, uh, continuing to make the same old claim, unless Steve, or acting attorney general, yeah, or yeah, or. But do you think is it possible the Biden administration will want to chart an entirely new course on either of the two, the three big dimensions of Guantanamo? Dimension one, uh, continuing to use and assert the the applicability of long term military detention. Two repatriation of those who are queued up for repatriation, but the conditions haven't been, hadn't been met. And then Trump quit caring about that. And third, military commissions as a venue for prosecution. Any change, Kevin? Um, only to the second one, I think. Um, so, so if I were a betting man, I'd go in order that, yes, the Biden administration will, in fact, attempt to repatriate those detainees who have been cleared by the Bobby still extant Right, periodic review board process. Yep, um, we, we had a we had a big clutch of uh, Yemenis, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. I don't know the numbers. I don't think there are that many left. Five or six, maybe. I think, but you know, I mean, given that there are only forty men left in detention at Guantanamo, that's not an, an insignificant percentage. Um, so I do think we will see efforts by the administration to repatriate those detainees. Um, I think the administration will be in no hurry to pursue new military commission cases, but of course. Neither was the Trump administration. Um, but I just don't see how, like, I don't see this administration spending capital, especially in 
Congress with either a Republican Senate or a Democratic Senate with a filibuster, um, which seem to be the two options at this point. Um, right? I don't see them spending capital on trying to actually sort of uh, um, uh, repeal the transfer restrictions. Um, and so that's going to be, you know, sort of the, the nail in the coffin of trying to do anything bigger than that. I think it's exactly right. Um, look, I mean, Joe Biden was there in in the beginning of the Obama administration where this exact, by the way, a point in time in which uh, doing something, quote unquote, about Guantanamo was a really big deal in, was a deal in the election, was a big deal to a, a vocal part of, it, of the base that got him elected. And I don't think that's true at all for what we just went through in this current election. I, there, there obviously are people, the kind of people who might listen to this show who care passionately about this, but the broader national public has very much, I think, moved on from this issue for better or worse. And so the the uh, sort of from with the pressure from within his own base to sort of make good, uh, he hasn't made any campaign pledges at all relating to this, hasn't talked about it at all, to the best of my knowledge, in this election cycle. So there's little pressure on him to do anything uh, in the broader sense. And even when that was not the case back with Obama uh, in the beginning of his time, uh, the judgment clearly became, and I, I was present in, I was in DC for some of this working these issues. And the judgment in my impression was clearly became that uh, the economy and other things needed attention more and the political capital shouldn't be spent to try to overcome the constraints that were there. Uh, so I think that'll be the same on on the continued use of detention for the legacy cases. I do think that they'll, they'll go ahead and move out those five if they possibly can, who'd already been cleared for transfer. And maybe- Maybe a bit of a trickle as a revived and sort of more invigorated and supported periodic yeah. review board process, I think actually could lead to a little bit further drainage. Right. So maybe, maybe a year from now, we're down to 30 detainees. Right. Well, um, and maybe it reaches a point where what they can do, it, depending on what Congress looks like two years out, maybe they can, you know, switch everybody to stateside uh, continued detention, or maybe they can get it to the point where they just go ahead and transfer everyone out, except for those who are going to be prosecuted, and they make a renewed renewed effort to prosecute some of them in civilian court. I just think that, like, I mean, I color me skeptical that this is going to be a priority for the Biden administration. For sure. For sure. So not much will happen. But, what but about, what about of, the commissions, though? Will the commissions continue to lip along in such an embarrassing <laughs> and ineffective way? Yes. Man. That seems. Nice. I mean, I mean, I mean, what's? I mean, you know, who's gonna who's gonna stop them? I mean, I, I don't I don't see it, until and unless there's an alternative, right? Which of course requires either the Harvey Rishikoff, you know, plea deal program to be approved at the highest levels, or some shift in the relevant statutory architecture. I I don't see. You know, they're not going to abandon the military commissions just into a black hole, right? right? They'd only abandon them when an alternative was available. So the statutory obstacle that is looming largest here, are you saying, is the trans is the geographic transfer constraints, which prevent and you or, more right. readily bringing them to say Eastern District of Virginia? Right now, 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 as I've as I've written in some in some detail, there are ways to get around those to do the trials. Well, not the trials. There are ways to get around that for plea bargains, where you could presumably actually do remote video conference plea bargains. That's what Harvey Rishkoff was allegedly working on when he was fired as the convening authority of the military commissions. Um, but I don't know that you could get around those authorities. Certainly, Bobby, without a statute for trials, and I'm not even sure that a statute would be constitutional in all the ways that it would allow for remote criminal trials. Is the, main problem, is the main problem some sort of vicinage requirement for jurors? So there's vicinage, there's venue, there's confrontation um, insofar as there's a confrontation right in this context, um, right? Um, there's... Um, Shoot, there was one other problem. Yeah, it's 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 the jury and it's and it's confrontation. Those are the two big ones. Is, is the confrontation problem a notion that you might actually have to have in person testimony and you couldn't do it video? I would think you that's could. the question. There's there's some debate about whether video testimony in a criminal trial implicates the confrontation clause. I wonder if that hasn't come up over the past eight months with some amount. Well, I mean, of most of the trials, Bobby, have been have been either bench trials or jury or, or civil jury trials or consent jury trials. Right. I mean, like, I think I don't know that there have been a lot of involuntary criminal jury trials yeah. by Zoom. Yeah. Maybe um, somebody out there listening will know this. Indeed. I wouldn't be surprised, or, though. And, and show I, our prep work again. I also I got to say, like, my I 
I'd be a little surprised if in the end there was no circumstance under no, that they couldn't carve out a sort of an exigent circumstance sort of exception, even if there is a sense that you otherwise need, of course, in person would be preferable. No, no, I think that's right, Bobby, but I think you need a statute, right? I'm not sure that the laws on the laws, I'm not sure that the relevant laws and the federal rules of criminal procedure and the federal rules of evidence as they exist today would allow that, which is why the question is how much political capital are you really willing to expend? Yeah, I think you're right. They don't want to spend it on this. I also think, though, that they're, at, it, it's it's totally true at the front end that this is extremely low priority. It's also true at the back end that I, I strongly suspect that the Biden administration does not want its time on the clock to expire without having done something about this. Yeah, I, I think the question is just what something, and 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 that may depend upon who the people are. So should we spend a minute talking about who the people are? Let's do nice segue. Thank you. All right. So um, we, know, we know a few things. At least we know nominees, a few of the nominees. And, uh, we know a few of the nominees. The nominees for best supporting for, for best performance in a, in a 2020 State Department are? Tony Blinken. Tony Blinken oh, is such a good choice. Um, yeah. Anyone who follows me on Twitter may have noticed that I circulated um, a clip of Tony telling this unbelievable family story of his while he was here at UT giving a talk a couple of years ago. Um, in particular, the story of, uh, I believe it was his father-in-law. Was it, was it, was, I think that's right. Um, as, as a child having, uh, basically having it in the Holocaust, having gotten away and basically encountering in a circumstance where it's like death around every corner and he, and he comes upon what turns out to be a tank and it's an American tank. It's got the American star on it. And he only knows three words of English. And the, the tank hatch opens, out comes this GI. And, and uh, the young child says, God bless America. And this story, and, and when he was telling this story, you could have heard a pin drop. He was dead silent in a room of hundreds of people. And the story of the GI picking the kid up, pulling him into the tank and like metaphorically and physically pulling him into the, the safety of American protection and like what it meant always to him and his family about America's special place in the world. It was so inspiring. It was really something. Um, so that, that obviously having that great family story is, is, is not the only reason I'm saying he's an excellent choice, but it's not nothing either. Someone whose identity is formed in that way and who stands for these things, that is and should be America's face to the world because that is and should <laughs> be what we are all about. There's an interesting there's going to be an interesting competition for for biggest shift in in humanity in a cabinet officer, right? And and Pompeo to Blinken is gonna be a pretty darn like an, and you know, selflessness and and lack of just sort of anyway. Um I, I don't know. It's going to be close. I mean, I don't. You know, whoever the secretary of education is is going to be a pretty radical shift from DeVos. I mean, uh, you know, the the hits keep on coming. Well, it. it I mean, it's obviously it's going to be radical shifts across the board because of starting in the Oval Office. Um, who, else, <laughs> who else have we got? Who else do you want right. to note? I mean, so so um, the president has announced his intent. The president-elect, pardon me, has announced his intent to nominate um, Avril Haines to be the uh, um, director of national intelligence. Um, slight improvement. Security law. I was going to say slight improvement over either the current office holder or the recent acting office holder who is still out there, you know, perpetuating conspiracy theories on Twitter. Avril's great, and uh, and it is cool to see someone who kind of has the national security law portfolio. <laughs> In someone who meets the so, someone who meets the statutory criteria for relevant experience. Well, um, so and that ODNI is is of course apart from the recent travails of who's been in the office, uh, it's a very interesting crossroads for whether and to what extent we we are going to have that institution over time. What value it's adding entirely apart from from who's been in the office. There there have been questions almost from the get go about whether and to what extent we either. You know, do we need to empower ODNI to have stronger authority over the rest of the IC? Do we need to limit it to keep it from doing less than it's already doing? Is it is it fine as far as it goes? Just leave it alone. Um, it, these were very open questions before Trump became president and before the troubles of that office came to a head in recent years. Um, but Avril is, is obviously an extremely capable person to uh, perform that function. Uh, we, we don't yet know who the CIA director is, and you can't really talk too, 
too completely about what the role of the ODNI is going to be until you also know who's going to be the CIA director. And for each of those two persons, who's got the stronger personal tie to the president? What will the president's preference be for who's the uh, who's the person they really lean on? For an and, and there's a region. there's a story I saw that 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 the job was offered to Tom Donilon uh, Donilon and and that he turned it down. I don't know if that's true, but that's interesting. I did see that he I I didn't I don't know if they offered it to him, but I did see that he said he does not want to do it. And now it's not going to come back to yeah. DC. Um, there's you know a lot of people wondering if Mike Morell, a uh, longtime CIA officer, will yep. the job. There's there's a lot of folks. Although I just I. I trying to prevent that from happening, arguing that he's too complicit in the use of torture uh, in the early days of, of the, the first few years of the post 9-11 uh, conflict with Al Qaeda. And it's an interesting question whether uh, whether that kind of pressure is whether that's going to cut ice with uh, uh, the administration. Of course, it's all a question also if, compared to what, like who else might you go to? Right. We right. get somebody unconventional or not. Right. Uh, we also have uh, Jake Sullivan from National Security Advisor, my my buddy from law school. Um, Jake, who who unbeknownst to most is a fantastic soccer player, um, and scored scored on me numerous times. What about in basketball? Did he play basketball with you? I know you're a big hoopster. I don't recall Jake playing basketball. Soccer was more his thing. Yeah. Well, um, he's obviously a natural choice, and extremely uh, experienced and thoughtful, well, well respected all around choice for that, and it's nice to see that kind of professionalization. Um, what else we don't okay so, secretary of defense let's talk about secretary so, so, so i want to talk about defense so um you know a, a lot of folks had assumed that michelle flournoy would be biden's nominee for secretary of defense um the fact that that hasn't been announced yet has i think led folks to wonder and you know there's also been speculation about a few other names um the the name that i heard most recently bobby was retired general lloyd austin um, right. Who was if I think he was what he was the vice chief of staff of the army. He was uh, the last commanding general of the U.S. forces in Iraq. He was uh, the commander of CENTCOM. I think he was the first black general to ever be the commander of CENTCOM. Um, yeah. So Austin's up on the list. Flournoy's on the list. A couple other names out there. Flournoy, the smart money was that Flournoy's in the bag. I mean, talk about somebody who's long been perceived as secretary of defense in waiting it would break the glass ceiling, you know, for the Pentagon. It would, it would be yep. it'd be a widely respected pick um, in terms of just sheer capabilities and knowledge of the institution, et cetera. Um, and it, my impression is that, again, a lot of pressure bubbling up from the, the left side of Biden's base, uh, arguing that she's too associated for support for the more aggressive things that Obama did. And or that she, in her private uh, practice over the past few years, has been too involved in accepting money from foreign powers. I I got to say, none of that cuts a lot of ice with me as a reason not to go with her. She still strikes me as absolutely the right person to go with. Um, but the fact that the nomination hasn't come out does suggest that the White House or the White House to be might be listening to that kind of criticism and looking for someone who might be less controversial. And then this leads. You know, to your point about General Austin, and I emphasize General Austin, this this idea that Secretary of Defense lets look to the generals and the admirals, and historically that ain't how we've done it. And in fact, as as longtime listeners will recall, we do have a statute that's intended in many ways to put some serious distance between the possibility of being the civilian Secretary of Defense. And having recently been a service member, having having been an officer who then retired, seven years by statute is supposed to be the rule, which would, if if uh, unless an exception is made here, as was done for General Mattis a few years ago, unless you get another statutory exception here, would preclude General Austin from being the nominee. So, uh, so I want to talk about the seven-year rule. So the seven-year rule is in 10 U.S.C. section 113A. Um, and Bobby, it initially was a 10-year rule. Um, and before General Mattis, um, the only person for whom Congress had ever waived it um, was General George Marshall. <laughs> yeah. Um, the bar who, was pretty high. But I was gonna say, by that, the way, I am totally down with was at the time and in retrospect, I'm really glad we waived it for General Mattis. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So here's where I am. I agree with that. I think as Trump cabinet officers went slash go, Mattis was in the the first tier of institutionally responsible and rule of law protective. Um, 
I and, and I should also say I have zero beef with General Austin. I think he's had a fantastic career. He has sure. broken plenty of barriers all his own. In the abstract, I think he would be very, you know, he has connection. He's on the board, I think, of Raytheon. I mean, he has connection to defense contractors. But frankly, who in that space isn't? Well, I, um, the idea that that should be disqualifying, I think, is ridiculous. We are talking about the Secretary of Defense. So, but, but leaving all that aside, I do have and continue to have and have always had um, civil military relations concerns yeah. about Congress willy-nilly waiving the seven-year rule. That to me, the seven-year rule serves import, vindicates important interests in why there is a civilian secretary of defense and in reinforcing the idea of civilian control over the military, which at least when the you know commander-in-chief is not a certified nutbag, um, is something I think is a really important constitutional principle. And so I guess, you know, I just... I, you know, I don't have a dog in the Flournoy versus Austin fight other than just to say that I don't want Congress to get in the habit of reflexively waiving the seven-year rule when there are so many well-qualified folks who either have been out for at least seven years or who were never in, um, right? That, that to me, the seven-year rule is not just a technicality. It actually is an important it's, – it's doing important work that I feel like a second waiver in such short succession – when there had only been one waiver in the entire history of the department dating back to 1947, um, would potentially really sort of, you know, eviscerate. Strong concur. It just be, it begins to normalize it. it beca- the public yeah. becomes very accustomed to the idea that the civilian secretary of defense, and let me emphasize here, we are not talking about who's going to be the chairman of the joint chiefs. We are not talking about any military. The position is supposed to be civilian. And there's, I think, a real tension there with recurringly going to people who are mainly identified from recent memory for their for their role as an officer. And, and indeed, and, and to me, this is actually a relevant distinction even between General Austin and someone like Admiral McRaven, because McRaven has been out for almost seven years. And so a waiver for McRaven would be like for three, like I think August would be his set, would be seven years for McRaven. Yeah. Right. And, and in between, he was the chancellor of the University of Texas. Like that's actually like a big intervening thing. Right. right. General General Austin has been retired for less than four years, um, right? And I just, you know, I, I, again, it's nothing against General Austin. I had the same objection to Mattis and just sort of put it in the, put it in the, you know, put it aside because just getting anyone who could stand up to Trump seems so important. Right, right. There's a, it's a question of compared to what. And here there's a lot of great alternatives. Flournoy, as I've said, it makes, I think, the most sense. But having, having worked, directly for Bill McRaven uh, for, for quite a while in more recent years at, with him as a civilian, uh, you know, I, I hold no one in higher regard. Um, so that would be totally fine with me. Uh, and if they end up going with General Austin, he is, he is awesome. Um, I'll be sorry about the general principle, but I'll be yeah. happy about the person. You know, general principle, G- general principle. <laughs> it's a, it's a major development. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of retired military officers, is that a good is that a good segue to Larrabee? Yeah, actually, it is. How about that? What, um, what else can we say about retirement from the military and, and the legal consequences? Uh, I hear there was a big district court decision on November 20th. Yeah, who's this Larrabee fellow and what did his lawyer do now? Yeah. So uh, Friday night, November 20th. So Larrabee, this is um, for folks who you know don't necessarily remember every single uh, a detail from every single episode of this of this brilliant, perfect podcast, um, right? Larrabee uh, uh, is a um, former Marine, um, right, who was court-martialed for conduct he committed after he retired. Um, we had initially asked the Supreme Court to take up his direct appeal to decide whether it's constitutional to subject retired service members to military jurisdiction for post-retirement offenses. The court had denied cert, so we had filed a collateral action in the district court before Judge Leon. Um, And after about a year and a half of procedural stuff and briefing and a couple of hearings, um, Judge Leon finally issued a a final judgment on November 20th, where he uh, ruled for us and said, yes, jurisdiction over retirees is unconstitutional. Um, And in particular, well, so in particular, I mean, we had offered two reasons why we thought it was unconstitutional, a broader one and a narrower one. Um, Right. Our broader argument was that retired service members just aren't, quote, part of unquote, the land or naval forces um, while retired. And so Congress can't subject them to military jurisdiction for anything they do while retired. Um, And our narrower argument had been at the very least, 
Congress cannot subject them to military jurisdiction for post-retirement civilian offenses. So, you know, after they've retired, um, if they just commit like fraud, you know, no court martial. Um, but if they actually commit like a military offense, maybe that's different. Um, and, you know, Judge Leon's opinion goes with the broader holding that just in general, retirees should not be subject to court martial. Um, let me just say, I don't think I'm speaking out of school and I suggest I doubt this is the end of this case. <laughs> um, if, you know, I don't think this is a partisan issue at all. I think any administration would would not necessarily want Judge Leon to have the last word. So I suspect we're heading to the D.C. Circuit, um, but much better to be the, the appellee um, than the appellant. This is a nice change of pace for you. I know. <laughs> Weird. Well, maybe although, I will say, other... although I was going to say, my, my both my SCOTUS and SCOTEX arguments in October were on the bottom. So Well, and you actually might get to go in person to argue this one, depending on how fast it unfolds. Uh, with uh, I'm, I'm hearing now Moderna's first shots potentially as soon as the 21st. Wow. Um, and, and I think I'll believe that when I see it. That's right. Yeah, I, no, but obviously but, the, 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 the full opening is not going to come till much later. But I think for things that are projected to occur in D.C., you know, certainly April, May, there's summer. at least a prospect now, certainly by summer, I would think. I, you know, I, it's all it's all about the efficacy of the vaccine and the and the and the and the the, the, the distribution ability. I mean, I it's really about you the know, efficacy of the refrigerators. Well, they're right. I mean, what it has to be kept like negative ninety four degrees? I think uh, I saw something. I think like that. Pfizer is negative ninety four, but Moderna is negative twenty, and you know, that's no, that's no that's no layup, but it's it's also not a uh, not quite the hell. You know, but you're saying that we should all just move to Antarctica. Well, um, maybe it'll turn out that AstraZeneca one, which is actually much more temperature friendly for the distribution. Maybe that one will. Although that one sure is having a weird rollout compared to the right. other two. It's also summer in Antarctica. Maybe the North Pole. Uh, we should all move to none of it. None of it. The 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 northernmost of the Canadian territories. All right. Um, so I, I, color me skeptical, Bobby, that like folks like you or 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 me um, or I uh, will be like you know anywhere toward the top of the of the distribution list, and that's as it should be. So I, I guess I, my hope right now is that we're back to normal by the fall. You know, I think I that's my hope. I, I think that's a I think it's a safe bet. In fact, um, summer is maybe in 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 person graduation, perhaps. I would not. I would not book that just yet um all right so larabee so i suspect the next the next development will be the government's appeal to the dc circuit but you know it's not an injunction so this will probably take a fair amount of time well congratulations um, i know how hard you worked on that uh speaking of appeals um right it's time to talk about coup de blah coup de blah you know there's not much to say and in, in the the litigations are as predicted so bogus that it, we shouldn't spend too much time talking what, about what are you talking about my, Going back the to president. my old principle that we shouldn't give too much airtime to too much nonsense. But in fact, I, I continue to see nothing that seems likely to turn into a uh, any substantial win for the administration. There hasn't been an appearance of this all along. The most fundamental fact that matters is the one that Chris Krebs emphasized to the world on 60 Minutes the other day when he reminded everyone that we actually have paper ballot backups for 95% of the machines in the country. And we hey, had all these completed recounts and they keep coming in almost the same as the, as the digital vote. There's, and as Chris says, proofs in the pudding and the pudding shows that notwithstanding inevitable minor and really small numbers of difficulties, um, nothing remotely like systematic fraud or, or failure. Period. Uh, no, no kidding. Um, but meanwhile, so I just want to say, while we're recording this, the 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 um, <laughs> um, right what what right wing media is portraying as a hearing of the Arizona State Legislature, and what is more properly described as like seven guys named Mo in a hotel ballroom. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, this what, like what is this? Oh, you haven't seen this? Oh, Bobby. I, I, um, unlike you, strangely enough, unlike you, I do not follow all these crazy things so this is now the second one of these the pens so there were like a handful of pennsylvania state legislatures who did the same thing last week they're having these sham hearings that they're saying are are hearings by the state legislature which of course they're not they're just like unofficial were, gatherings of members of the legislature in hotel ballrooms um right it's like you and i sort of meeting together for drinks and calling it a faculty meeting um right like that's you know that's what not that, how now, there's an idea maybe these people are on something 
But anyway, so so they're doing all of this so that they can say, look, we're look at all this evidence we're receiving about fraud. Never mind that these sham hearings are not coming with any legal authority or penalty of perjury or anything that would actually hold any of the putative witnesses to tell well, them the truth. That's what happened with every person, as far as I've seen, every person who's come forward with any fraud claim, never under oath. And every time they've been put under oath or in a position to issue a sworn statement, they've retracted. Well, and I think just for the non-lawyers out there, like there's a reason why the federal rules of civil procedure require that any allegation of fraud be pled with particularity. And there's a reason why what Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis are telling the media is radically different from what they're telling the courts, because they cannot actually plead fraud with particularity because there wasn't any. And were they to do so despite the lack of evidence, they would be subject to professional discipline. And that's like, this is the point I think is getting lost in the exchange. The reason why the lawsuits don't look anything like what the right wing media story is, is because the lawsuits are based upon rules where you can't just assert shit and where you actually have to be able to, you know, substantiate allegations of fraud with particularity. And for as bad as these lawyers are, and they're pretty bad, um, they at least seem to appreciate that they would be jeopardizing their professional livelihoods if they turn some of these media allegations into court allegations. Right. Well, okay. So the coup de bloc continues to deflate and fizzle. Um, we should, and so, we, so, do we have a sound effect for that? No, all I have is the drums and the, and the ball and the, and the, um, but so meanwhile, Arizona certified today, um, Wisconsin, I think is certifying today. They finished their recount and the recount actually produced like, I think 80 some odd more votes for Biden. But they keep, um, it keeps happening. It's happening in Milwaukee too. It's, it's funny how that works. Um, so, you know, we're on a straight line to, um, all the relevant states certifying by the safe Harbor deadline, which is next Tuesday to the electoral college meeting on the 14th and voting for Biden. I mean, you know, Nothing is going to happen at this point to derail this. And no matter what you hear from crazy people on the Internet, that being said, right. I'm sorry, Bobby. No, no, please. I'm dying to know what the scary but is going to be. No, there's no there's no but there's the I continue to be absolutely horrified at the Republican politicians who are out there perpetuating the idea that this was a fraud and that like this was stolen from President Trump. Um, and I would just add Senator Rand Paul to the to the list of indefensibly reckless Republican uh, political leaders. I'm afraid you're out what there. he did, but I'll agitate you even more by offering this view, my opinion, oh, gosh. Uh, which is that what's going on here, at least from Trump's perspective, this is a fundraiser. This is a grift. All the money, they're raising so much money on the on the claim that the money being donated will help support this last ditch effort to you know prevent the steal of the election, but the fine print famously said, right. famously it paid on the debt. Yeah, it's it, yeah. If you don't give more than eight thousand bucks, they don't have to use it for that at all. It goes directly to the PAC, which is being used to pay off campaign debt, you know, in in all sorts of purposes other than what the people giving the money think they're giving the money for. There's a lot of money being assembled here that's going to become this post-presidency political war machine in the president's hands that he'll use to continue to exercise his power. That's why Trump Trump is doing it. But I think a number of his supporters are being completely duped by the fact that both, not just he, but all these Republican politicians continue to say publicly all of these unsubstantiated things about fraud. And I just think- So what's the difference? Is this about about trying to avoid an upswell in their own constituencies and their voting bases? Do you think that's what I, it is? I, I, I think, I, listen, I am not a political scientist. I, my, my amateurish understanding of this is that all of this is because the Republicans have polling data that tells them that if they don't look like they're supporting Trump in his wild grifting fraud claims, they'll pay for it. And you know, for McConnell right now, that that's not an abstraction. That's all about the two Georgia Senate runoffs on January 5th. But I just have to say, like the amount of damage they're doing to democratic norms and the extent to which they are eroding popular faith in the legitimacy of our electoral process. You know, I don't, it's not, listen, it's not going to matter this time around, but what if in four years, the election is closer? What if it oh, comes absolutely. down to a single state with like a 14 or 1500 votes difference? No, I very much, I very much agree. And by the way, I think it could end up backfiring on them in the Georgia races as so. they, as they relentlessly message the Georgia public that the system's rigged. Um, it doesn't matter, but, but you have to vote for us. 
Well, like maybe maybe some people are going to decide they're not going to vote at all. Oh, okay. So, so it is this weird combination of the Keystone cops and incredibly norm eroding behavior. And it's just like, and we should laugh at the Keystone cops aspect of it, but we should not lose sight of just how dangerous and damaging, not the president's conduct, but the conduct of his, like, you know, for hopefully the last time, the story is not Trump, but the extent to which the Republican Party has fallen, has lashed itself to his, you know, deranged mast. Well, I would go further than that and say that the bigger issue behind that, so you start with Trump, you go to the larger set of enablers, but then you go to the information ecosystem or the disinformation yeah. ecosystem that is that is leading, because you've got this mass of millions of people who are buying into some of these lies. Um, they're not all sitting around thinking like, well, what other harmful thing can I just decide to support today? No, maybe a few are thinking that, but most people are not. Most people are acting on what they've been led to believe is true and then acting on their best lights in light of that. That's how so many millions of people have seemingly lost their minds if you're not sharing the information space they're dwelling in. I don't know how that gets fixed. I don't know that can be fixed. It's a very right. frightening feature of our current environment. That's right. Um all right. Well, but at least for now, the, the, the immediate coup danger seems to have passed. Um, all right. Should we turn to some frivolousness? Get frivolous. We can finally talk about the Mandalorian. So, friends, if you're not caught up on the Mandalorians yet, expect. And I mean, caught up. I mean, I mean, like yeah. caught up. Like, follow, if you follow. have not watched like last week's episode, so here's our. You better get off now because I'm about to do some spoiling. Here's the spoiler pause. <sighs> all right. All right, Bobby. I've got one thing to say to you. Is it Grogu? No, Gregor. blue blue skin, red eyes can't lose. <laughs> is that some weird Thrawn Friday Night Lights mashup? It absolutely yeah. is. I'm very disturbed. <laughs> All right, so we've gotten the, we've gotten the big foreshadow that another they're really pulling into the non movie uh, materials canon. Yeah, and so uh, Ahsoka Tano made her. I think super awesome Rosario Dawson performance appearance in real life. It was it was weird seeing. A oh, wait, before before we get to Rosario Dawson, can we talk about Katie Sackhoff? I mean, all of it, all of it. Okay, I mean the ba- the Battlestar Galactica crossover. Come yeah, on, man, that was that was cool. That uh, was that was baller. I I maybe mispronounced his last name, but Michael Bine or Ben. Um, you know from uh, from Terminator, from Aliens, Johnny Ringo from. From Tombstone as the hired gun. That was that was your gift, right? That was excellent. That was that was very fun. I I just wish I could quote the Latin um, the way that he and uh, and he and Doc's uh, did, was it Doc Holiday in Tombstone, wasn't it? That he has the big Latin exchange with the famous. I think that might be right. They exchange the famous quotes. Anyways, stay focused here. All right, let's kind of go in Bobby. sequence. You you caught up to it all in sort of a. A recent flurry, so this will be. Oh, I watched it in like one. I watched it in one day. I was, I was ready. So, do you agree that for a while there, it was slipping back into that, like speaking of Battlestar Galactica, into that '70s style? Like, let's see, this week we'll have an episode on an ice planet, and then that'll end, and next week we'll have it in an old west town. I kind of say that as someone who's creeped out by spiders, the ice spiders were. Hmm. I did not enjoy that episode at all. Okay, so that. That episode, I thought, was by far the weakest in, in several respects. Um, this sort of, I guess, the main plot advancement, because otherwise it was just sort of like, hey, what can we do? Let's go to this right. environment, Ice have, planet. have a sort of contrived dilemma that you can kind of get out of. It, it set up the idea that the the Alliance, you know, you've got the X-Wing. The New plot. Republic. No, no, the New Republic. The New Republic. This is important. Right. So the New Republic. It's like it was like an episode of Chips. Like Ponch and John tried to pull him over, and and then they like utterly inexplicably Deus Ex Machina style show up at the end to save you know to save Mando and and Grogu from uh, the not actually help them Mama Spider. But then yeah, but then not really help them. Just kind of issue a ticket. You know, stay right. safe out there. I mean, even though even though your ship is busted, yeah, and, um, and, and they've picked up that theme now a couple of times with like. The New Republic, the X-Wing fighters are literally California Highway Patrol. 
Okay, but 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 that's important, right? So 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 listen, I I continue to object to the pace of this series, right? That 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 like it is you know we're learning one important piece of information per episode. That's why like last episode was was amazing because we learned two important pieces <laughs> of information, right? So, but, but it all feels like like they're parceling it out to stretch out the story as much, and, and that's just annoying. So so to me, all of the spider shit in that episode was beside the point. The important part of the episode was learning that the new republic which of course we know is called the new republic in you know the post return of the jedi star wars canon um is increasingly trying to extend its influence into the outer rim yeah right that that um it is having trouble that it is detecting the sort of buildup of some insidious plot right in the in these outer territories even if it hasn't yet attributed to the resurgence of the empire, what's eventually going to become the first order. Right. And so like the, the whole import of that part of the episode was like, you know, listen, we're setting up, you know, we're, we're, we're putting you in the context of the broader struggle between of, of the coming struggle. That's going to be, you know, the new Republic versus the remnants of the empire. Fair enough. Like they're reminding you, cause otherwise I guess people are saying like, Hey, where's the new Republic? Why aren't any, right. anybody showing up there? It was, it was thrilling just for the first appearance of the X-Wings. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yes, and then they and then they raised their 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 attack foils. Right, um, that, that was very cool. But the fact that it was all happening in the context, literally of you know pulling a guy over yeah, on yes, the highway, yes, they yes. they might as well have had their R two units have like right. blue police lights. Blue, blue, blue. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we read your we read your transponder. Pull over in the name of the Republic. Pull over right now, darn it. <laughs> um okay so listen there's a lot to, there's also the the previous episode right or what pre so there are two other i think big things that happened before this week's episode right one was meeting the other mandalorians right the katie sackoff gang yeah, yeah um right. and and learning that maybe you know our particular mandalorian guy um right is in fact you know part of this weird cult of mandalorians and yeah, not actually sort of a yeah, normal we're, mandalorian we're a situation where obviously uh uh, Pedro Pascal, we can't see his face, but he's getting better and better about being expressive just with the head tilts. And his kind of head tilt as she like kind of unloads on him about like, listen, you're oh, so you're one of those weird cultish men. Right, you're one of those crazy people. Who thinks she can't take your helmet off. And you just kind of see him be like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not normal. Um, I, I also like I also like setting up sort of the the relationship between the Mandalorians and the Jedi as this important theme, right? Per the Ahsoka Tano, there's um, some lore going on there, right? But then there's also the 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 not quite derelict space station, right? That actually is a lab um, where we start to figure out why Moff Gideon is so interested. Yeah, in that was interesting. The child, I, I'm I'm never happy. When they go to the prequelish midichlorian, yes, yes, that, it's all about the midichlorians, and just the whole like you know, like, well, they were they were just you know getting donations of blood from from Baby Yoda, and like, and, and they didn't even do you notice they didn't even say midichlorians; they said his M count. It's yeah, like we yeah. know you hate the word. I we're not going to use that. the word. I appreciate that, like kind of like knowing where the red lines are for for the longtime fans. All right, but then we got to so so I was watching this week, the last episode. And I was like, all right, this is interesting. Okay, he's Ahsoka Tano is telling him stuff about the child. Okay, this okay, fine. And then I was like, wait, what just happened? Right, the who's your master scene? Um, right. I was like, oh, okay, I'm in now. <laughs> you you are on record on the show already being quite a fan of Air of Empire and the other. Uh... Uh, yeah, so Timothy's on. So Timothy's on. Uh, originally wrote a trilogy. It's now up to eight books, um, with the ninth coming out next year. Um, and the original trilogy was the Heir of the Empire trilogy, and it was my fervent hope that that would have been the baseline, right, for Episode Seven, Eight, Nine, about what uh, sort of a revitalized empire after the demise of the Death Star, you know, the second Death Star and the Emperor and Darth Vader would have looked like, and the protagonist. I think protagonist, right? Not and like the protagonist of those books um, is 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 a, a member of the Chiss ascendancy um, named Grand Admiral Thrawn, um, and Thrawn is a badass. He is like a brilliant tactician. He is smarter than everybody. You know, he's not like he doesn't kill people just to kill people. Like he actually is like more in some senses more moral than maybe his predecessors. Right. Right. Um, and and the, and it was just it was a fantastic. I love that whole series. And then Timothy Zahn has gone further. He's now re- he wrote um, an intermediate trilogy, um, right about sort of how Thrawn rose to power. And he's in the middle of a trilogy about Thrawn's ascendancy within the Chiss, um, 
right? Which now has two books and a third coming out, I think, next year. Does all that material let lead into first order smoothly, or do you have to kind of reorder and rewire some things? So this is the tricky part, right? Like Thrawn, you can have Thrawn as a character consistent with the the new canon of the sort of seven right. episodes. He'll be like nine. a key character in organizing it, but maybe not but, being there for the show. Well, that's what's weird, right? So first of all, I mean, Thrawn does happen. I mean, I guess so. The Thrawn stuff is earlier, right? I mean, like like the the Thrawn timeline is well before. Um, the seven, eight, nine timeline. So it's at least theoretically possible you could have the Thrawn timeline and then, <laughs> then the um, seven, eight, nine. But that would be weird because then, because like the whole premise of the Era of the Empire trilogy is that the New Republic is caught off guard by the resurgence of the Empire. How would right. how would they be caught off guard by the resurgence of the Empire and then caught off guard again by the resurgence of the First Order? Like I just you know that's Fuckers. fool me one, shame on me. Anyway, but all this is to say. Thrawn is a badass. And so when the big reveal in this week's episode is that the 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 pup, you know, the master pulling the strings behind the curtain is not in fact Moff Gideon, but it's actually Thrawn, right? That has me very excited. Yeah, that was good. That that is a lot of uh, expandability for the series. Yes. I yes. thought the cinematography and the fight, especially the fight scene in the yeah. in the quasi-Japanese uh garden area. Yep. Uh, was was pretty fabulous, uh, especially the. Oh, it's it's so beautifully. I mean, it's so beautifully made. I mean, uh, the, the, my my central problem with the show remains that like every fifty minute episode is really ten minutes of important material, yeah. um, right? And forty minutes of ooh, look look how pretty. We I, can I, make I agree with that. I think plot wise, the pacing. Look, I get it. They're this is a this is an important commodity, and they're they're milking it. <laughs> yes. um, oh boy, are they? The the cinematography has been unbelievable. The dialogue continues to be really unworthy, in my opinion, of the quality of the rest of this. Um, it, it has been wooden and stilted. It, it, it is very, to me, very resonant with uh, the prequels uh, and some of the obviousness of the lines. I mean, just a little bit of cleverness would go a long way, at least for a few of the characters, but especially anyone who shows up in any kind of supporting role like um, I forget the name of the character, but when when uh, Mando goes to get the ship repaired, the woman who who's the mechanic, um, the lines are dispatched so woodenly and so quickly, so quickly you can almost feel the direction saying, "Hurry, you got to you got to get that information out quickly." So so it's clear to the audience what Mando ne- now needs to go do, and it kind of feels like a door of the Explorer episode sometimes. Like, all right, you're totally. you got to go through the the Crystal Forest and then cross the Sparkly Bridge. Um, hopefully, hopefully that'll change over time. And I mean, I just, you know, so, so I, since the Mandalorian started, right, I've had the same critique over and over again, and it hasn't changed. It's just that like, you know, as time goes on, the little snippets eventually build into a compelling story. And so yeah. it's just like, you know, yeah. the, so, so if next week we actually see Thrawn and we see Thrawn doing Thrawnian things, um, you know, I'm in, but you know, come on people get there faster. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they wanted to give you time uh, to catch up, and they've done that. So now they can they can pick up the pacing. And, and I will say, I, I, I did, in fact, on Friday night, send out a tweet that I sort of regret. I sent out a tweet that was just one word in all caps, THRAWN, exclamation point. And there were folks out there who were mad at me for quotes, uh, spoilers, unquote. <laughs> and my response to that is, the amount of information you have to know in advance to know that what that one word tweet is a spoiler of the most recent episode of The Mandalorian, suggests to me that it's not that much of a spoiler. Not much of a spoiler. Well, um, we have a lot to look forward to. I got to go teach class, so we better end Okay, but, but I just want to say, like, by the next, you know, the, the first place Giants, man. First place Giants. Congrats. Uh, Colt McCoy, I, I couldn't be more thrilled for him to be leading a division leader. Um, now, 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 here's the Giants' remaining schedule, just really quickly. So just, just before we get our hopes too up about this scenario, the Giants' remaining schedule, let's see. Um, week 13, uh, the Seahawks. Week 14, the Cardinals. Oh. Week 15, the Browns. Week oh. 16, the Ravens. Oh. Um, week 17, the Cowboys. So, well, you know. I'd say they, they could only possibly be favorites for one of those. So my so my hope is that they somehow pull out one of those four games, right? The Seahawks, Cardinals, Browns, and Ravens, so that they go into the Cowboys game five and ten, right? Where if they just somehow <laughs> playing for the division title at six and ten, that's you know because we swept the Redskins, we've swept the artist formerly known as the Redskins. So if that's who we're tied with at the end of the season, we'd win the division. 
Oh, and then get a severe beat down at the hands of somebody in the playoffs. Okay, well, now, now wait a second. For the record, right? For the record, of the, I think it's either two or three teams in NFL history have made the playoffs as a seven and nine division winner. And I think I think it's three have made it, and two of them won their wild card games, right? Including this, what was it, the the Seahawks over the heavily favored Saints a few years ago. So you know, don't hate on the don't hate on the six and ten division winning Giants. That's all uh, I'm saying. Yeah, I think I'll I'll, I'll be willing to uh, suspend disbelief, especially if Colt McCoy's at the helm. That man's a winner. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, let, me, uh, let me show you my my favorite thing that arrived in the mail today. Check oh. this out. You see that? Ooh, Ready Player Two. Ready Player Two has arrived. Ernest Klein's sequel to Ready Player One. I, book people hosted him for a talk mm-hmm. um, a couple of days ago, and Heather uh, surprised me by getting me a, a ticket for that. So I watched That's the very cool. online uh, thing. It was filmed from his garage with his two uh, DeLoreans, Wings Up. It was pretty great. That's very cool. Yeah, well, meanwhile, I am I am reading book seven in the Thrawn series, which is actually book one, which is actually book one. So I had never actually read the, the, the post air of the empire, which are technically pre air of the empire, um, Thrawn books. So I've been going back and reading them and I'm up to, I'm up to book one, which is just Thrawn ascendancy. Okay. Well, this turns out to be pretty relevant. Indeed. Um, well, I may have started Friday night. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, he is at Bobby Tennessee. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, you know, we keep falling down on this record every week thing. But now that that now that the semester is over, yeah. I think there's a good bet we'll record next week. So send us topic so ideas. We, we should. I want to talk next week, remind me, about this, uh, the civilians in conflict uh, study about use of lethal force for counterterrorism. Lots of, I'm not just saying that because they slapped me a lot in here. There's lots of good <laughs> stuff in here about traditional military activities, sensitive military operations, and other things that are under the heading of my favorite counterterrorism topic, the way we actually legally approach the frameworks for using lethal force. Excellent. And if time permits and we're not bumped by other topics, I want to talk about the Supreme Court's decision last Wednesday in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo, oh, yeah, um, which sure. I actually That'd think is... I actually think that is a um, when the history of this period of the Supreme Court is written, we're going to look back at that decision as the beginning of a very dramatic shift in how the court approaches a certain class of cases. I can't wait to talk about that. That'll be good too. That's, and that, and that, my friends, is called a teaser. <laughs> All right, um, please uh, uh, stay safe out there. And if something is called a state legislative hearing, don't assume that it is. Adios.